Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. My next guest is Executive Director of Women's Lunch Place, Jennifer Hanlon Wigan. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Women's Lunch Place is a daytime shelter and advocacy center in Boston for those who are working but struggling, homeless or temporarily jobless. Can you tell us about your mission and how Women's Lunch Place began? Sure. Well, our mission is to inspire hope for women who are experiencing hunger, homelessness, and poverty, um, and to help them gain self-sufficiency. We create a wonderful community and a safe space, and our whole service model is based on building relationships so that people can can move forward. And we we focus on the areas of health and nutrition, uh, housing, and economic empowerment. We started 40 years ago. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary. Uh, two very young women in their 20s, Eileen Riley and Jane Alexander, were our founders. Many people think we are the safest space in the city for vulnerable women. We're located in the heart of the Back Bay, where we've been for 40 years. We consider our, our Healthy Meals program to sort of be our flagship program. That was you know, one of our founding principles. But we have a wraparound services. We really are a day shelter and advocacy center. And our advocacy work has just been growing at such a rapid pace in the past couple of years. But also, you know, we, we provide really basic services for folks, showers and laundry, toiletries, emergency clothing. Can you talk about your kitchen? I say you don't get a better lunch on Newbury Street than at Women's Lunch Place. We are a scratch kitchen. We make everything fresh. We work with local local folks to try to source as much of it locally as we can. For example, one of our partners is Gaining Ground and Concord, a nonprofit that provides fresh food to, to nonprofits like us. We're really working to make sure that we have as much fresh food as possible for our guests. We use over 90 fruits and vegetables a year. We have our own herb garden. We serve lean proteins and whole grains. And we have a real variety of menus in terms of culture, different cultural foods. We have taste testing so we can have our guests try different different things that we want to add to the menu. We serve our meals restaurant style. So there's dignity in the service. Uh, you are our guest and we're happy to have you in our community. And we share the meals with our, with our guests as well, which brings us all together in the community, our staff, our extensive volunteer corps and our guests. Can you expound on who your advocates are and what services and programs you provide? So we are a low threshold shelter. So there's no intake process when you come through our door. So if you want to tell us that your name is Mary or, you know, Becky, that's fine, but you don't have to. We just welcome you to to come into a safe environment. So a lot of our guests really just access the basic services and our meals and they're in a safe place. But we hope that once people are receiving healthy nutrition on a regular basis, which is the most primary need, that they can start to plan a pathway forward. So our what we call our direct care staff really engages in relationships. And then they try to make a warm handoff to advocacy when somebody's ready to, to maybe tackle a more complex need. 
So our advocates are folks who have a background in social work or public health or psychology or women's rights, um, and that really work on connecting guests to things like benefits, housing, housing search, housing stabilization, making referrals for mental health, physical health, getting a woman who walks through the door who's just fled a domestic violence situation into a shelter. It's such a wide variety of things that they that they tackle, but they really meet each woman where she's at and help her make her own unique pathway forward and always, always letting the woman lead in, in terms of what she's ready for next. But we have incredible success, I think, because our service model is so individually driven and relationship driven. Just to give you a, an idea, in what our fiscal year was 20 when the pandemic hit, we housed about 35 women from homelessness that year. The next year, 57 women, a 63% increase. And this past year, 65 women. So it's really increasing in terms of the number of unique guests that we're seeing, the visits that we're seeing them for, and over 50% of those visits, which have more than doubled, are for housing. So that is the really pressing need in the city today and that in the greater Boston area. You recently received a grant to create a workforce development center. So how will that change things at Women's Lunch Place and help you further support the economic independence of your guests? Sure. We're transitioning a, a storage space um, into a, a effectively a a classroom and, and meeting space for these programs. And it will allow us to, you know, really have a more professional approach. We're in, in alignment with that increase in advocacy services that I mentioned is pressure on our space. We don't have enough office space. We don't have enough program space. So we're really trying to figure out ways to utilize our space to, to do this. So taking this space, outfitting it in a, in a dignified current sort of format with, with Proper computers and, and training stations will be um, really helpful. It'll also help us engage more partners. We have wonderful partnerships with organizations like Liberty Mutual and Bank of America that support our employment readiness. And it will allow us to, to develop new, new partnerships and new programming with the space to do that. I think the thing that makes Women's Lunch Place approach to workforce development really unique is that there are a lot of wonderful workforce development programs out there if, um, if you're ready for that. We have a really vulnerable group of women whose life skills have been eroded from trauma and homelessness. And it's part of our work is to knit that together. So we are doing the work of employment readiness for women who are really pre-contemplative to contemplative about taking this step, which is a, a, a big step and a difficult one. And what makes us unique is that we're offering these trainings and courses, but we're also working one-on-one -on -one with our guests to help them with all those, you know, sort of rebuilding their life skills so that they can meet this challenge. And then when they're ready, we hope that we can send them to a partner organization that has a full-fledged workforce program or directly to employment. I mean, we certainly have women who come in and are employment ready and they just need some, some assistance with resumes and, you know, practicing interviewing and things like that. But for a big, a big subsection of our guests, they're starting at a, at a different starting point. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. There are great programs out there, but we want to get women ready for those programs. Yes, indeed. So can you talk about how homelessness affects coping mechanisms and life skills? We know that more than 90% of women who end up homeless have severe physical or sexual assault in their background and oftentimes rooted in childhood. So the trauma is very severe. 
And we also know that we have a community of women, majority, minority, over 60% of our guests are women of color. Over 50% are age 55 and older. The homeless population is aging. We also know that they have not had access to what we call the social determinants of health, you know, good education, uh, nutrition, opportunity. <laughs> and so we are really, you know, kind of focused on that, on that deep, deep-seated trauma. So we always talk about our service model being very integrated. So while we are focused in this area and workforce development, we know that some of those women might be involved in a recovery class. We're, we're, we currently have recovery programs running four days a week, and our goal is to get it up to six days a week so that they have access to multiple facets of programming that can support their economic empowerment in the future. It can be, it can be small steps, but for example, we had a guest, we had a computer training class and she had never, never worked on a computer before. And she was so excited. And she said to the instructor, I'm going to get a job. Like she was just, and it you just thought that's, that's hope. Like that's, that's in our mission. You know, we, we offer hope where maybe there wasn't any before. And you mentioned offering basic necessities. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You know, these things that we take for granted and especially being that it's winter time and it's a difficult season to be homeless or working for. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I think one thing I like to talk about in our with our basic care services is that we really try to offer choice whenever possible. You forget how often you have a choice in life. So when a guest comes in and we can say, you know, what shampoo would you like? Or what color nail polish would you like? It's it's great to have that offer. We always like in our meals, we always have a vegetarian option. So folks can folks can choose. And I think that that's a part of it. And the other part is just, I mean, just imagine like where some of these women walk in, in the morning and they've been assaulted overnight. They've been urinated on. I mean, it's really tough. And to be able to have a, a staff that greets you and get you a robe and get you a shower and make sure that you have some fresh clothing. They're just things that most of us take for granted. And so many, so many of our supporters will say to me, I look at your website or I come to the shelter and I think, what what makes that person any different for me? And it's really, it's luck. It's, it's you know, really just the circumstances of our life that put us in a different a different place. What brought you to being the director of the Women's Lunch Place? Well, my background is, is not in this is in this work. I was a, a finance professional and um, MBA um, in my background, but I've been in this this kind of space for a couple decades now. And it really is about access. How do we create access for folks who have barriers, you know, in, in front of them that most of us can't imagine? So I feel like that that's what inspires me, like personally. But um, I'm motivated by the incredible staff we have at Women's Lunch Place. I mean, truly, I just, I have the best staff there. Such a variety of women from lived experience to different, you know, races and cultures and languages that we speak, but really everybody brings their own, their own history to this work and their own, you know, dynamics to the way they approach guests. Really very inspiring to see the difference that, that, that sort of proactive, respectful approach can have on women. So how can people get involved with Women's Lunch Place? Sure, sure. Well, you can find us at www.womenslunchplace.org. We're at Newbury Street in Boston, 67 Newbury Street. So you can walk walk on by as well, but we welcome folks to become engaged in a variety of manners. You can connect your, your local women's group with us. You can come in as an individual. 
You can get a, your, your corporate group behind us. There's lots of ways to get engaged in this work. Uh, we'll be participating in the Winter Walk in Boston, so you can join our, join our team. You can find even more opportunities on our website. But I, what I will say is that when you walk through the doors of Women's Lunch Place, you find a community and you find that you, you really participate in lifting up that community. Our tagline is dignity is everything. And it's just at the core of what we do. Everybody, every woman is their own authentic self. And we really want them to be able to, you know, move forward and celebrate their gifts. So I think that's what you'll find at Women's Lunch Place. The guests at Women's Lunch Place, equal parts of our society. I, I often say, you know, access to healthy, nutritious meals is not the purview of the privileged. It's it's a human right. So I think when you participate in the work around providing nutrition and advocacy and, and basic care, you really participate in lifting all women up. And we're all, we're all connected in so many ways, our, our stories. It's great that you stress the relationships and the dignity because we can see it even in teaching with children, how they respond to compassion and people being really present with them and to their individual needs and individualized care is really where it's at. And, you know, you mentioned women's different styles, you know, the staff and the advocates, how they work with the guests and everyone has brings something different to the table. And so there's going to be certain kinds of really strong rapport between certain guests and certain advocates. And that yeah. is everything. And just the fact that you're creating such a community of people being authentic and, right. you know, coming from the heart, everyone is in that place. So you're mm -hmm. all being great role models, you know, I mean, you're all really creating that mirror to reflect yeah who their true self is so that all of the experiences that they've had can just sort of melt away and get it really who they are so that their strengths can develop from there. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Jennifer Hanlon Wigan. My second guest today is Dr. Paula David. She is a geriatric and group therapist who specializes in working with patients who have experienced extreme trauma. Dr. David is an educator, lecturer, and her collective poetry project with Holocaust survivors at Baycrest Geriatric Center in Toronto became the inspiration for Silent Tears. It is a collection of poems turned songs and the album is out right now. So today we talk about the unique needs of victims of war, how memory is affected by extreme trauma, and also how creativity helps survivors. Welcome, Dr. Paula David. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. So there is so much to talk about. I found it fascinating. You sent me a manual on care for geriatric survivors of the Holocaust. Today, we're mostly going to be focused on that, but you've also worked with Native Americans who have experienced similar trauma. So can you talk about the common theme here and what we can understand about the needs of families today who have experienced wartime trauma? When I first started working with older Holocaust survivors, I had no idea of what I was getting into, of the complexity of the work, and what that would mean, because there never had been a cohort of elderly Holocaust survivors. Very few older adults survived, and therefore, 45, 50 years later, when I entered, 
the picture that we didn't have a significant number. So the people I met were the young adults who were beginning to age and face age-related challenges. As I became more and more immersed in my work, and that was the focus of my job, I realized there were many commonalities. And anybody working with Holocaust survivors and Holocaust history, Holocaust studies over the years, has two underlying major motivations. And one is so that it should never happen again. And obviously it happened again and again and again. And secondly, there is no redeeming factor whatsoever in anything in my mind that um, anything good came out of this. What we did have and a gift from the survivors is their narratives and what we might learn to support other people post-Holocaust of genocide and extreme trauma. And part of their reason and rationale for even tackling their narratives and telling their stories was never again. That was a common theme across the board. And part of that was to, I felt obligated and many of us did, to learn and share the knowledge. So as I progressed through years of working with survivors and their life stages, I always felt there was a, a large obligation to share this knowledge. During World War II, it was the Jews that were persecuted and incarcerated and annihilated, as were Jehovah Witnesses, as were LGBTQ people, political dissidents. And as I said, that's a broad range of experience and a broad range of narratives of the survivors. So it was a matter of reaching out and sharing. And then as we started collecting information and sharing it, first of all, amongst the staff, and this would be everybody across the healthcare team, doctors, nurses, PSWs, personal support workers, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, and in a residential facility, cleaners, the staff that works behind the scenes to keep the building going, they're often in people's rooms at, and during off hours and quiet hours, and their skill set and their insight and understanding is critical to comprehensive care. So just sharing everything we learned as we learned it. So for a long time, we didn't stop to write it down. And hence, we knew there were triggers. We knew that from experience, we would do something with the best of intentions. And then it would blow up in our faces and we'd make note of that and quick tell everybody. One example was for a major Jewish holiday, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra volunteered to come up and send a few musicians to give a little concert during that day to honor our, our residents, period. Actually, it was a day program. So there were community people and we were thrilled with this and had the whole setup and let people know, help people get to this concert. And at that point, I, I think they were playing Bach. I'm not sure which. About five people just got overly upset, massive reactions, and had to be taken quickly out of the room. And we found out later one of the songs was a standard song that an orchestra played in Auschwitz as people were being marched off to the gas chambers. Totally inappropriate. 
So right away we knew we had to be very careful about what we did. But on the other hand, you can't just stop the music because we had many people who were thrilled to have top-notch musicians playing beautiful music. So it was much more of an art than a science. And that's a hard thing to develop expertise in and share. So we needed an alternate program for those people that we identified as potentially being upset. We needed to ensure that those people who would appreciate whatever it was, um, regardless of their war experience, were still be able, able to benefit from it. So fascinating work. And then at some point in talking to, I'm in Canada, so this would be Canadian. We also talked to American veterans associations, but that music would be a trigger, a very likely trigger for aging vets. Whether it was songs that they remember to cheer them up on the battlefield that just brings back memories of the battlefield or brings back warm memories of the camaraderie and the challenges and the fact that they survived. So sharing the underlying theme um, across the board. And Toronto is a very multicultural city. So we have both refugees and immigrants from all over the world. And as they become established, they start building and providing ethno-specific, cultural-specific care for their elders. So to get the words out to them. And it was very ironic. At one point, I was dealing with genocide survivors war vets in our veterans facilities and a Japanese nursing home, all of whom had elderly residents, some with early dementia, having very difficult and specific flashbacks and reactions. So during World War II, these were very different divergent groups and incredibly different experiences, but their aging experiences and trauma-related impact was very much the same. So fascinating and very much evolutionary work. There can be many triggers, as you're talking about, for these aging victims of war and Holocaust survivors. Their daily activities, like taking a bath or taking a shower, pose sort of a, a certain danger or threat. How does extreme trauma's effects change over trajectory of life? How does dementia, Alzheimer's, and short-term memory loss impact a survivor? There are... I would say there are as many answers as there are individual survivors. So I think in any trauma work, which you also would understand, but across the, the age spectrum, it's individualized approaches. And I believe that's the bottom line standard of care that we would need in all elder care. So who were these people when they were younger? Where did they come from? And what were their lives like is going to impact with or without cognitive impairment their experiences so when and I would say the cohort of older adults today all had some kind of major challenges many of them one not so much two world wars but one world war many of them are here in North America looking for a safe haven which means they left an unsafe haven as they're aging and face various physical challenges and losses, that becomes more vivid and more challenging to withhold, as well as bringing up a capacity for resilience. So you have on each side, then you put on, that's for normal, healthy aging with 
normal aging, which still presents some physical challenges and emotional challenges. If you have cognitive impairment and it's progressive, if you have it and it's not progressive, it's a challenge. If you have it, it's progressive even more so. But what happens, um, the way the brain functions, you start losing short-term memory first. So for people who speak several languages when they arrive in Canada and work very hard and very successfully at learning English, that will be the first language to go, which immediately shuts down a lot of communication for those of us who don't speak several languages. And then as the dementia progresses, they go farther back and the most comfortable language would be their language of origin. And it's not standard across the board, but that's common. And memory also becomes more vivid. If you're just joining us now, you're listening to Healing Wisdom on Outermost Radio. I'm Pandora Peoples, and we're speaking with Dr. Paula David. Behind me is Romany Waltz from Pandora Tango Ensemble. This is from Silent Tears. I am still a working older adult, and I have so many more reminders of my youth and of times when I was much younger and more vivid and more engaging. I'm more interested than ever I was. And I think part of it is I've raised my kids. They're independent. I don't have to worry about them. I have time to reflect. And I didn't have that at a certain stage of my life. So that's common. And it's a common developmental thing. But then if you throw in the element of genocide or massive trauma or massive loss, it really complicates so that anything normal in everyday world that you're used to, you may not like it, but you've accommodated in your life, you may lose that and all it does is remind you of horrific times. And so often, those of us caring for these people, we don't know what those times were. So, and we're trying to do our very best work and somebody is terrified of us, it's a challenge. Yes, for a long time time in my work with survivors, they have learned to live with their story and know how to narrate their story in a way that protects them. They may choose to edit it. They may choose to leave something out. They haven't forgotten those details. They have chosen not to tell. In my personal experience, I waited a long, long time for them within our group to trust me. I thought they just had to test me over and trust me infinitely before they would tell me anything. It was about a year of not much communication other than surface stuff. And at which point, when they started talking, I realized they were protecting me as they did their adult children. So many of them, stories of sexual abuse, physical assault, ugly, ugly killings that they witnessed, or their own extreme pain, they chose not to tell that part of it. So many survivors incredibly bravely went in to talk to school children, what became part of adult education after they had finished raising their kids because of this necessity of never again to share the stories. And yet I know, even though those could be horribly upsetting to do the retelling, they were committed to it and it was still a somewhat edited story something that I often saw, because I had a group, I often heard those parts. 
And I can't tell you how many times I heard somebody say, I've never told anybody this, and I never will, as they tell me the story. So I think there's also a need to tell it and to repeat it, and which is how I got involved in looking at creative outlets, because I didn't know what to do with this story. And they also said, and you could never tell anybody. So I had to reconstruct the story so that it wasn't identifying. But I also felt it was my obligation to not let these stories disappear. Dr. Paula David. This is the first in two parts of our conversation. Tune in next week for part two. Behind me is a prayer for rescue off Silent Tears out now. The words were written by Molly Applebaum and Dan Rosenberg. Music is by Artur Gold. A prayer for rescue features the vocals of Marta Kosiorek. In this program, we heard Silent Tears which featured words from the Terrace Holocaust Survivors Group, led by Dr. Paula David, vocals from Aviva Chernik, and music by Rebecca Wokstein. We also heard Don't Let Us Starve, vocals from Aviva Chernik and Olga Avigail Milesuk. And we heard Romani Waltz, featuring music from Sergiu Popa, music arranged by Drew Jereka. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. Our theme music is provided by Mason. You can find her at MasonMusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N.